0: Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Layton Kling. Friday, that means it's time for another Food Focus podcast, Trent and Leighton Kling, as we discuss a couple of earnings calls, including those from Chipotle and Buffalo Wild Wings, as well as Sonic and a possible venison rollout at Arby's. But first, we will talk about Chipotle's latest earnings. Lots of gloom and doom, as is customary for Chipotle over the last 12 months with their earnings report. However, there are certainly some positives here. And honestly, I look at a lot of these negative headlines in somewhat of a quizzical fashion because when you compare it to last year's third quarter, yes, not looking good. When you compare it to their last quarter of this year, things are slightly better, actually.
1: Yeah, they are. It was surprising to me they were actually profitable for this quarter. Net income came in at 7.8 million thanks to large reductions in gross margins. Chiptopia and BOGO coupons played a large part in the margin reduction overall. You saw a 95% drop in net income over the same period last year. And I think that's the number that analysts were really looking at when they were being bearish on this stock, looking at this earnings report. They were saying this 95% drop in profit over the same period last year, but you fail to take into consideration the E. coli outbreak didn't happen until quarter four and into quarter one of this year. So quarter four of last year, was when it really got big and then it dissipated around february of this year and so you won't see a lot of good numbers coming away from comps until about the next couple of quarters or so but as you mentioned the sky is falling mentality was really apparent in the media outlets you really saw that in the stock price the stock price fell between nine and ten percent after their earnings release on Tuesday. And I think a lot of people were wondering where do they go from here? A lot of people were saying that perhaps they need to go old school marketing and have some more television advertisements. Typically in the past, Chipotle hasn't advertised on television mediums. They've done other things through social media and the like. So I think Chipotle is kind of clamoring here, but for people to say that it's going to be a much longer timeline for them to recover from the E. coli outbreak from earlier in the year, I think they're going to be a little short-sighted in that in that it's only been seven or eight months since the FDA announced that the coli outbreak was officially over that was in february february 1st actually it was declared officially over by the cdc
0: you see all these articles out there about how chipotle is floundering about how the chiptopia program didn't work you saw a slideshow in fact from one major media outlet saying 10 restaurants that are trampling chipotle none of those are true The only thing that's trampling Chipotle here was the E. coli outbreak, which you said hadn't been recovered from until February. What I want to concentrate on is not necessarily same-store sales, although they did fall 21.9% that dovetails pretty reasonably with same store sales declines we've seen in previous quarters after the E. coli outbreak. What I want to concentrate on is store transactions. Those only fell year over year 15.2% which was the slightest fall in store transactions since the E. coli outbreak. Part of that can be attributed to the Chiptopia program. Six million people signed up with the program. 2.5 million were able to reach an award status, basically meaning that they visited Chipotle at least four times a month during the three months that Chiptopia was being held. And as we mentioned earlier on this podcast, 85,000 people achieved free catering status, meaning that they were making 11 visits to a Chipotle each month during the Chiptopia offering. Now, part of the reason why you see a greater decline in same store sales over the number of transactions is this. With that Chiptopia program, they were giving out a lot of free food and they were giving out a lot of free drinks with their college student program and they had a number of deals to entice consumers to come in, especially during the month of September. So anytime you're offering an immense amount of free food like Chipotle did, you're going to see transactions falling a little bit quicker than same-store sales and you're going to see the amount brought in per ticket also decrease but when you develop or redevelop those consumer habits those numbers as far as same store sales is concerned will begin to go up in the long term and as you mentioned we might not even see full impacts in the fourth quarter regarding same store sales year over year but I'm waiting for the first quarter next year to see whether or not any of their corrective strategies are working. One of the most notable corrective strategies they've taken on has been the introduction of Chorizo. Again, they tested it out in a few select markets, rolled it out nationwide during the quarter so they didn't roll it out at the beginning of the quarter but rather waited until recently to roll it out and despite the fact that it was rolled out late in the quarter it still accounted for seven percent of sales for the restaurant in the quarter which is remarkable and I think that's why you're going to see a little bit of a bump from chorizo you're going to see a higher percentage of sales be impacted by chorizo in the fourth quarter as people begin to jump on the bandwagon beyond trying it out.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't just people trying it out one time. The chief marketing officer, Mark Crumpacker, did mention during the earnings call that 84% of customers who tried the new menu item, the Teresa, reported that they liked it and 70% said that it will increase their desire to eat at Chipotle. So we don't know whether or not that's true. We're going to see that in the next couple of quarters, but I, for one, have several friends who absolutely love the chorizo, and it really has brought them back into Chipotle. I really don't think this hurts Chipotle to try new menu items and to have more limited-time offerings in the future. There are rumors and speculation about Chipotle trying and experimenting with different desserts, and they're also, as I mentioned, rolling out television advertisements, and they're going to be looking at the data they're getting from all of the people that had signed up from the Chiptopia program. They have a lot of customer data to look at and mull over in the next few quarters, and they're going to see what are the strongest markets and what are the weaker markets that they see more opportunity. And not only that, domestically, they're going to be looking at overseas expansion for Chipotle as well. So there's a lot of opportunities going forward. And again, it's just a pleasant reminder to see that despite all of these headwinds Chipotle is facing, they are still profitable. A lot of people, again, think that this is all bad for Chipotle, but they were able to turn a profit And keep staffing levels up mind you they had their second annual chipotle hiring day they really haven't tinkered with the overhead at these particular locations they received actually some criticism from analysts in doing so analysts saying that they should be cutting back employee hours potentially laying off some employees since customer traffic is slow but as you mentioned traffic really hasn't gone down it's just the overall revenue is down because of all of these buy one get one promotions and the Chiptopia Rewards program. But overall, I think the future is positive for Chipotle. As of recording this podcast, the stock is down a fair bit from what it was trading at before the earnings release. Again, around 9 or 10% still. The stock is trading around $368 a share. This is down from about... a share before the reported earnings. But if we go all the way back to when the E. coli outbreak wasn't present, back about a year or so ago when it was trading around $700 a share. So a lot to see here, and I am curious to see if Chipotle is able to
0: dig themselves out of a rut. And one other thing to note on Chipotle before we move on is that new restaurant openings actually met its high end of expectations They'll end up opening 220 to 235 new restaurants in fiscal year 2016, and they expect to open between 195 and 210 restaurants next year. Coming up in a few months, we'll begin to see same-store sales metrics from a few of their newer restaurant openings. That should also help to bolster same-store sales numbers that have been on a drastic decline from one year ago, at least to this point.
1: With those new store openings, I really would like to see my new favorite pizzeria locale open up in some new markets. It's only in a few markets currently, but I could see a lot of momentum in the coming years considering that type of concept has really taken off with other franchises. We'll move on to another earnings story. This one about Sonic Drive-In as they released their fourth quarter earnings for the period ending August 31st. And they saw both franchised and company-owned stores underperformed for the period. Adjusted earnings per share still ticked up about 5% thanks to share buybacks to 45 cents per share even though net income dropped overall. So you saw them reducing their total share count by about 10% in 2016 and this is why that earnings per share number was up a little bit. But if you look at same-store sales and growth there, this is what is a little bit peculiar. They had a lot of positive same-store sales up until this quarter. Same-store sales for the quarter dropped about 2%. They fell at 3% for corporate-owned locations and only 1.8% for franchisee-owned locations, which is a little bit weird considering that the company typically outperforms the franchisee locations. However, that is not the case here with Sonic.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that Sonic did... in This release is they're kind of indirectly blaming food deflation for their lagging revenues, but also their margins are increasing and that's something that they can certainly thank food deflation for. So even though you might see same store sales take a little bit of a hit, the company still very profitable as margins went up to 20.6% this year up from 2015's 19.2 percent so we get a full year look at sonic because this was the fourth quarter release their same store sales came in at a positive 2.6 percent for the entire year this drops a little bit as far as the increase in 2014 it was up 3.5 percent over 2013 and 2015 reflected a 7.3 percent increase over the prior fiscal year one of the more interesting things regarding sonic is where they will be opening some of their new locations they have targeted areas of the country as many restaurants seeking to expand will do that are currently bereft of a lot of sonic locations so they've gone out And done some research regarding where they might be able to place Sonics in the future and one of the things with Sonic some of our customers may not even be wholly familiar with Sonic simply because they are a chain that is mostly on the west coast mostly in the southern United States and then a little bit up the east coast as well as the midwest but in the north in the northeast and in some areas of the pacific northwest they really don't have the presence that they have in the midwest and the south to give you a little bit of an example example, Sonic currently has 957 locations in Texas while having just two locations in North Dakota. And even though North Dakota is a reasonably sparsely populated state when you compare them to Texas, still you could make the argument that there is room for more than two Sonic restaurants in North Dakota. The unique thing about Sonic as far as their space in the QSR industry or the quick service restaurant industry is because of their drive in footprint their stores don't necessarily have to take up a lot of room and they can build in smaller markets in smaller towns. Frequently in the Midwest and the South, you'll see a Sonic as the only restaurant in a town of one to 2,000 people, so they don't need a larger metro area in which to expand, and this will certainly help them as they build into some of the more sparsely populated states in the North and the Northwest as well. I'll also be anxious to see how their format works, how their format is accepted into the Northeast, even though they do have stores in the Northeastern United States, they're not ubiquitous like they might be in the American Midwest and the American South. So, positive signs for Sonic in that they are eyeing certain areas for development. They want to expand their store reach by 2 to 3% by the end of the decade. They opened 31 new drive-in restaurants during this last fiscal year and they end the year with an additional 22 in development. So, they're looking at about 65 to 75 new locations and a handful of remodels as well for this next fiscal year.
1: Just this year, they remodeled or relocated 47 locations. And next year, they say that they're probably going to do about the same overall. But as for their total store count, Sonic operates or franchises 3,557 locations in 45 states. So I do see a little bit of growth if you're looking at the company in the long term. As you mentioned, just not a lot of presence in those northern states. But if you look at states like California, Arizona, Kansas, Nebraska, such a massive presence Sonic holds. And I think they really would do well in any market. As you mentioned, it doesn't really matter the population for the market they're in. They can be in the smaller towns, the smaller cities, and still perform very well. And the performance is something that I did want to talk about here with Sonic in that per location, on a per location basis, they have annualized revenue increase for six straight Years. And so right now you're sitting at fiscal 2016 for Sonic. Revenue per location comes in at 1.284. Million dollars, and they expect this to grow to 1.5 million dollars in 2020. That represents a 17% increase in just four years' time. So, executives at Sonic are really bullish here on the performance of these individual locations, and they're doing this in a number of ways. Not only are they remodeling or relocating some of these locations to make it easier or better for customers overall, as far as the experience aspect of as far as the experience aspect of Sonic, but they're looking towards innovating and creating ways to get people to stop eating at home and perhaps go to a Sonic instead of taking advantage of those lower grocery prices. Trent, you mentioned food deflation, and that is something they mentioned here. They gave a graph on their investor relations presentation that depicted a 4% gap in September between the price of food bought at a grocery store and food consumed at a restaurant. So this is something that restaurants are looking at very closely, and they're trying to draw in people. And so one of the ways that Sonic has specified a strategy here in order to get people away from doing that is to have offers at certain times of the day. So they're really looking at the afternoon to evening portion of the day that Sonics are open. They're offering boneless wings, a buy one, get one offer for Monday through Thursday after 5 p.m., they also have in certain markets 50 cent corn dogs after 5 p.m. They're also serving some breakfast items all day to really compete with the likes of McDonald's that has taken advantage of their enhanced all day breakfast menu. They also have increased drink variations with iced coffee and different frozen and iced teas. And they're testing a Smart Pops innovation where they're adding flavors into a person's favorite soda. So they Offered certain suggestions. One of them was strawberry vanilla Dr. Pepper, another raspberry vanilla root beer, and another blue coconut cherry sprite. So, a lot of flavor infusions that are coming with this innovation. And they expect to roll this out to new markets and a larger amount of locations in 2017 since this has had a positive response from the general public.
0: We don't talk about Sonic a whole lot on the Food Focus podcast, but one of the reasons for their increasing revenue on a per-store basis has to do with the fact that they're doing better operationally at the single-restaurant level, not so much at the corporate level, although you could also argue they're doing well operationally there. They've really done a great job at increasing their throughput on a per-restaurant basis, Part of that is installing card readers on all of the car bays which they've done over the last 10 years in a system as they begin to upgrade all of these outlets. And a lot more people are paying via card so that reduces the amount of times a car hop has to go back and forth between the restaurant and the stall that a car might be in. In addition, at a lot of their renovated concepts, they're including drive through windows as well to help to push things through. But it used to be that the average wait time was a lot greater at a Sonic restaurant. They've become a lot better at that and they've introduced as you mentioned day part promotions which is somewhat unique to this qsr category in addition they've offered daily promotions on a regular basis over the last 15 to 20 years so 50 cent corn dog day would be a good example of one a town near me and this is just anecdotal evidence but when sonic on one particular day in august had 99 cent root beer floats. They actually had to call the local police out to the Sonic to control the traffic flow in and out from the Sonic. That's how popular they were. So Sonic does a good job at the restaurant level of driving traffic on particular days for those deals. And once again, as we talk about time in, time out, generating those consumer habits. Now they have to keep doing that. As we saw, same store sales decrease a little bit, but again, food deflationary pressure will do that to same store sales as long as their margins continuing to improve and their margins went up seven percent over the last year i think shareholders will be reasonably happy and i think more importantly as long as they can keep their throughput increasing i think customers will be happy because that was one of the largest customer complaints towards sonic five six seven years ago was that you could pull into a sonic even though it's a qsr and be waiting for anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes sometimes
1: It does seem as though they have been keeping Sonic customers happy as of late, trying to enhance those point-of-sale transactions. Those card readers certainly help people, especially those that are worried about things revolving around customer security. They don't often like people taking their card and going away for a few minutes anymore. They just like to pay where they're able to get the food, and I think that's very important for their customer service aspect. Unlike the customers, the shareholders probably aren't happy as of late, The stock was down several percent. The stock was down about 10%. After the earnings report, the stock down from about $26.50 a share to $23 a share. They actually hit their two-year low. So if you look at the two-year graph of the Sonic shares, it's been a bumpy ride for them. But I think with the increased amount of shares that they're buying back, granted they are taking out some debt in order to do this. They plan to spend $173 million on repurchases for 2017 to reduce the share count by as much as 17% that is dependent on the share price of course but again if you look at the stock right now it's trading around 23 dollars a share and the stock represents a 1.12 billion dollar market cap so again a lot of potential for sonic if you look at their overall amount of locations and again they aren't present in five states and they could dramatically increase the number of locations in their northeast and northern areas of the united states
0: We move on to another restaurant in the quick service category. and We take a look at Arby's. They've been in the news again the last few days. It seems like we've talked about Arby's a lot of late. But they're introducing in limited markets venison for the first time. Now, the venison won't be sliced like the roast beef or the turkey that they often sell. In fact, these venison sandwiches will actually have venison steaks on them. They will be top and bottom round venison steaks. This is a flat-top preparation for Arby's, very similar to their pork belly sandwich. And this continues with Arby's mechanism of toying around with different proteins, different meats, and different preparation styles of meat. Here is the catch, though. This particular item will only be available in 17 different locations nationwide in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Georgia. The idea is that they will introduce them in states where deer hunting and eating venison is fairly popular. However, these locations will only carry the sandwich for two to four days each, and a lot of that is simply because of supply chain issues with venison not being a tremendously popular protein.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's all about supply and demand. So many of these locations will only have this, as you said, between two and four days. If you look at the promotional material that Arby's has put out, it seems as though they are certainly proud that they will be serving venison for a short time. One of the promotional materials says it's meat season. Let the game begin. And then they show the picture of the sandwich, which really does show that thick slab of venison on that particular sandwich. For the sandwich itself, it contains a thick cut, top and bottom round of venison steaks topped with crispy onions and berry sauce, all placed on a toasted roll. And this comes from Arby's itself. However, I could not find any nutrition facts on Arby's website considering this was, one, a limited time offering, and two, it's not yet in any of those 17 locations. As for those locations, one will be in Wisconsin, one in Tennessee, one in Georgia, four in Minnesota, four in Michigan, and six in Pennsylvania. So again, that makes up 17 total. And this really is in areas that are concentrated by deer overall. So as we were really trying to get a feel for how this sandwich tastes, we did look at a response from Arby's chief marketing officer, Rob Lynch. And he said, the idea is Probably the biggest stretch for us, but adds that the sandwich is incredibly delicious and that bringing venison to our menu allows us to continue to set ourselves apart from the competition when it comes to proteins. He said you can't simply find this at other restaurant chains. And this is really evident if you go on to Arby's website. They are very bold about the idea that every day at Arby's, we serve at least eight different meats and we are proud of every single one. So here, they're not only experimenting with these limited time offerings, they are trying to find ways to get different proteins to their customer base. They feel as though this is the best way to gain brand loyalty. And in these regions, it makes the most sense. When it is deer season, deer meat is plentiful. So this is going to create some positive operating margins for those restaurants, at least in the short term.
0: I would imagine that certainly you might see in some of these markets lines of people who have gathered to try this new sandwich. As far as Arby's deer meat, now it's not wild captured deer meat. Instead, it comes from free-range grass-fed deer, and that's something that they've also been fairly clear about. But again, this works hand-in-hand with their tagline voiced by Ving Rhames in their commercials, We Have the Meats, and they're not shy about trying different types of proteins on their sandwich. I have had venison in the past, and it is a pretty good protein. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that it's not available at more restaurants, at more eateries nationwide, and it comes down to the supply chain. There's just not a whole lot of deer ranchers, if you were to put it that way, in the United States, despite the fact that it is a fairly lean meat and it's not really all that gamey. So it's not too much different from other types of meat. What I'm most interested in for Arby's is if this opens the door for other limited time offerings that have some regionality to them. So will you begin to see other game meats pop up in certain different areas of the country? And also, will you begin to see Arby's use their flat top a little bit more like they're using with this and like they're using with their pork belly sandwiches? They've gone away from using the slicer on a lot of their different sandwiches. You're so accustomed to seeing things like roast beef or turkey or chicken where the employees at the Arby's can just push a button on the slicer and it will dispense that particular meat. So you're adding certainly in terms of employee training for these specialized items, but I think overall the boost that they'll get from selling these different menu items for a limited time, just a few days even, works pretty well on that level for Arby's. I don't know how well it would work for another fast food restaurant or another quick service restaurant like, say, Wendy's, for example.
1: Well, we move on from Arby's, which proudly sells several different kinds of meats, to Veggie Grill, which just got $22 million in funding from several investors to expand beyond the West Coast. Currently, Veggie Grill has several locations on the West Coast. They are looking to expand to different locations, different markets where they think the Veggie Grill will take off. Currently, the chain has 28 units and they look to double in size in the next three years. So about 60 units is what they want to have. The largest portion of the funding is coming from existing investors and a private equity firm, Power Plant Ventures. So a lot of optimism surrounding Veggie Grill as this type of concept really is taking off in the healthier, more health conscious areas of the United States.
0: If Arby's tagline is, we have the meats, Veggie Grill's tagline should be essentially, we have no meat. They offer not only veggie-only dishes, but also meat substitute dishes like fried chicken, without the uh, E at the end, it's I-N apostrophe, and veggie steak, which they use in certain bowls, in certain plates, and on sandwiches as well. And one of the things that they're very clear about is not only the fact that they omit meat from their menu, all types of meat, but they also try to limit saturated fat. Although some of their dishes do have 7 to 10 grams of saturated fat, and a few of them are a little bit sugar heavy, for the most part, saturated fat content and sugar content is within a reasonable range for a lot of their dishes. They also use a lot of whole grains in their dishes, including quinoa. You see a lot of kale pop up in their menu as well as other healthy vegetables. I'm a little bit surprised in that they do use protein substitutes in a lot of their dishes rather than using just vegetables by themselves. But the biggest thing is, as you mentioned, they're looking to double within just a few years, and that's where the $22 million in funding comes in. As of April, they had 29 restaurants on the West Coast. They're all concentrated in California, Washington, and Oregon. And something that they've said in the past, and their upper management has said in the past, is they want to try and expand away from the West Coast. But to be honest, I see expansion opportunities even within the West Coast. Let's take a look at the Seattle Metro area, for example. There's only three locations for Veggie Grill in the Seattle Metro area. If you're not familiar with the Seattle Metro, of course, there are a lot of suburbs that ring the Puget Sound area. But the three locations that are in the Seattle Metro for Veggie Grill are downtown. There's one in Capitol Hill, which is not too far away from downtown, and one in the University District, which is by the University of Washington, also fairly close to the Seattle downtown area. However, there aren't any locations in suburbs or growth areas. So right now, the Seattle metro, you see growth areas like Issaquah or Woodinville, which have become largely upper-class expansion areas there. And you don't see anything in Bellevue. A lot of Our retail focus and food focus listeners will at least be familiar with Bellevue because a number of businesses are centered out of there. There's nothing in Renton. There's nothing in West Seattle. So they could easily add five to eight locations in the Seattle metro area without expanding past the West Coast. And one of the nice things for a company like this is that it would improve distribution mechanisms greatly. You don't want to have those one or two sporadic locations in the Midwest, a few locations on the East Coast, before you saturate your market on the West Coast simply because it harms your distribution mechanisms. And we've seen this before with other healthy food restaurants. Life Kitchen would be one example. And even though I think we're both fans of the overall Life Kitchen concept as far as whether or not it could take off, they also expanded too quickly. They expanded beyond their distribution interface. And because of that, they had some outlets that were only open for six months before they had to be closed because either they weren't popular or they weren't profitable. So it's very important for Veggie Grill to make sure they are operationally sound in those markets they currently occupy and that they've exhausted their expansion possibilities in said markets before they expand. And even if you're looking at Western states, you look, they have no presence in Salt Lake City. They have no presence in Las Vegas. They have no presence in Phoenix. So there's a lot of areas that they could expand without having to jump over the mountains and without having to craft entirely new markets in their restaurant. On chain.
1: Even though their menu offerings do appeal to a broad span of consumers all across the United States, it would be smart to, if they're going to expand these locations, to do so very carefully. You don't want to expand to regions of the country, as you mentioned, that would affect your supply chain. So they can go just a couple states over, maybe a couple states up, but something they really need to pay attention to is these expenditures. Knowing the market that you're in is some of the most important means of success for restaurants. Real estate is key and you got to know the demographics for a particular area, especially because Veggie Grill is in a particular niche. They're appealing to the health conscious consumer. So you can't just go in to any location, obviously, just because the rent is cheap. You have to acknowledge that you are trying to appeal to a certain mindful consumer that doesn't want these meats in their meals. But overall, I do think that they can expand even over 60 restaurants in the next three to four years if they do so. Again, very carefully and try to mitigate the interest expenses on that debt. Currently, their concept is between 2,600 and 3,000 square feet, but they can shrink to about 2 to 2,200 square feet. So that is what really differentiates them from other like restaurants. If you look at their locations, they are very efficient. And I think that is going to be something that is going to help them long term because their overhead costs associated with expanding their footprint is going to be minimized here. And I think also if you look at Their offerings of delivery. Delivery is going to be something that a lot of consumers are going to be questioning in the future when they're thinking of quick service restaurants. They want to be able to have that ability to get things delivered to their home, and they just want that convenience. And I think by offering that $1 delivery option that they have in most of their stores, as well as the carryout option, is essential for Veggie Grill. I think not only has their menu evolved to meet the taste preferences of the modern consumer, but also the convenience and how they deliver the food to that consumer as well. It really does surprise me. If you look at their website, VeggieGrill.com, some of the first things they say is that if it's a meat-free zone, and they're mindful fat choices, so no saturated fats from animals. You mentioned that some of their menu offerings do have saturated fats, but none of them come from animals. And then they also say that they have no old-school tofu, and that their tofu is a satisfying sautéed, grilled, and glazed food with pleasuring texture. So again, they're really trying to appeal to the palate of their consumers and the healthiness of their food as well so this is kind of twofold here and that their food doesn't consist of conventionally raised food and that it's also very convenient something that i did want to mention is that comes with a price a typical plate or a typical sandwich for veggie grills between 10 and 12 dollars which can be a little bit pricey if you compare that to another restaurant that really cares about the quality of their food Chipotle, as we had mentioned earlier with their earnings call, Chipotle has a price point around $7 to $9. And so that does come above a little bit by about 20%, the typical cost at Chipotle. Although Chipotle does have the benefit of having meats on their menu and they're able to source those in larger quantities and they have a larger store base as well. So it's going to be one of those things that they're going to have to address for the long term as they're seeing pricing pressure from all around the restaurant industry
0: couple of things to add on to what you've said here. One is their online interface for ordering is excellent. They actually use the same interface, Olo, which is used by Shake Shack and Five Guys, as well as other businesses like Jamba Juice and Wingstop. Chipotle uses it for their catering in addition. And the other thing is that CEO Steve Healy had mentioned that universities are actually approaching Veggie Grill based on interest from students and faculty, and it's really remarkable that to this point they haven't expanded into that realm, although I think one of the potential hangups is that a university with a food offering is going to look for something at a little bit of a lower price point, where most of their entrees run $9 to $13. That's going to be a little bit of a higher price point for students to be able to manage and to be able to manage on a college campus. Most of their appetizers, run six to eight dollars as well so just like you were saying about pricing pressure i think they're going to get pricing pressure from the open market but they're also going to get pricing pressure from third parties as well they've also mentioned that they'd like to see themselves in airports airports you don't have quite that pricing pressure because a lot of the prices on airport restaurants are on the higher end, but certainly not on university campuses, and that's something that they're going to have to work around because when you open a restaurant on the univer- on a university campus, you must also be cognizant of how that's going to work into the student's meal plan. So a lot of students will have meal plans that will carry them through three meals a day or two meals a day or even just one meal a day, and if their reimbursement rate has to be 9 to $12 for their certain entrees, that's not going to work well with student meal plans that runs six to seven dollars a day so there's entirely new dynamics there existing around university campus food service that it seems like veggie grill is going to have to work out some kinks before they fully explore some of these options for expansion although I do think their overall concept would certainly work on a college campus but some questions going forward we mentioned they may not even have to expand beyond west coast states at least for now to reach their 60 location goal but also, where might this work, given that they haven't really spoken about target demographic areas? We mentioned Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Salt Lake City as major market options based on their headquarters. But where are some other markets, Layton, that you feel like this veggie grill concept could work on a wider scale?
1: To be honest, I think pretty much anywhere in the United States right now, and especially the East Coast, which wouldn't do them a favor because the East Coast is so far from the West Coast, obviously, logistically, that would be a nightmare for them from that supply chain point of view. But overall, again, I think people are being more health conscious. And I think something like this, especially being focused so much on the actual taste of these items, not just being vegetarian but having really good taste to go along with that and being seasoned properly and having proper feedback from customers as to what they want and what they like is very important. And I think that anyone would appreciate good food regardless of the content of that food. So I think anywhere throughout the Northwest, again, more expansion up through the Northwest and even the Midwest, believe it or not, I feel like Chipotle has really taken advantage of those that are health conscious in the Midwest. Again, that's where a lot of pizzeria locale locations are at, and they've been doing very, very well in those markets
0: our final news story for the food focus podcast comes via buffalo wild wings they released quarterly results and their same store sales were down declining 1.8 percent in company-owned stores and 1.6 percent in franchise-owned stores however their top line revenue increased 8.5 percent driven almost entirely by new store openings And their net earnings did increase 17.8%. So very similar here to what you're seeing with Sonic, where their margins are increasing, their top-line revenue is increasing because they're expanding, but same-store sales are down. What are some of the possible reasons Buffalo Wild Wings might be struggling a little bit?
1: You know, I think it's going to be the same kind of things that we've talked about with restaurants like Buffalo Wild Wings. So for instance, Red Robin is having some similar issues here with the same store sales struggling. But I think it's getting those people into these restaurants. People are claiming that the lower football ratings have caused Buffalo Wild Wings to kind of slow down as far as their day-to-day business is concerned and that days with NFL screenings are actually equivalent to days where they don't have football games on. So I think they have an overall issue of getting people into their restaurants and really trying to send that message that, listen, this isn't just about the food, this isn't about the wings or the beer, but it's about the experience. But believe it or not, people more and more often are wanting to eat at home. So I think they're going to have to focus on the convenience and getting this food to customers in a different way. They're maybe going to have to downsize some locations and really focus on the carryout experience. They were emphasizing over the last couple quarters the efficiency and speed of their service. And I think that's something that will definitely carry over into the next couple quarters. I think also they're going to have to look at price point. You see a lot of companies complaining in the restaurant industry about food deflation and how that's affecting their top line revenue. But I think they could take advantage of the cheaper raw input costs they see at their restaurants by lowering some prices and getting some more sales in there, some one-time offerings similar to that you were mentioning about Sonic. Why not have a special one-day offering where you have a sale on one of your menu items? I I think it really wouldn't do any harm to try things like this. And I think that just blaming it on macroeconomic issues such as deflationary problems and taxation. I think these are types of things that are showing that the company's not as focused as they maybe should be. I think also you're saying that franchise locations are going to be opening at a lesser rate than company-owned locations in the next year. And I think that's indicative to the fact that they don't even trust their own model. They're opening 30 to 35 company-owned locations for 2017, and they project only 15 franchised store openings. In years past, you compare that, it's about 50-50. And so again, they need to create a model that can evolve with the times and create more than just a brand recognition and focus less perhaps on their overall atmosphere that they offer at their individual restaurants.
0: In their annual report to shareholders back in August, that was the main thing they focused on was the customer experience, the feel of their restaurants, what you experience when you walk through the doors. But as you mentioned, the issues might be a little bit deeper than that. They spent $200 million in fiscal year 2015 repurchasing some of their stores back from franchisees and as you indicated they're expected to open about half as many franchise stores next year as they did in this fiscal year however they are franchising out their international locations and that's where they see expansion possibilities at in that same annual report given to shareholders back in august they see massive expansion opportunities in canada and that's where they're expecting some franchisees to open up during the next fiscal year however outside of Canada there really aren't a whole lot of places in the U.S. that they have eyed for expansion despite the fact that they have announced that there will be 30 to 35 company owned and about 15 franchise store openings in the next fiscal year. A couple of years ago, they came out and said Texas was ripe for expansion, California is ripe for expansion, and now a lot of those markets have been saturated by store openings. So they're creating a smaller store concept to fit into smaller markets, including markets that might house a college, despite the fact that there are only 15 to 20,000 people trying to energize the young crowd towards Buffalo Wild Wings. Also, they see some growth in their R-Taco concept. You might possibly see up to 15 R-Taco locations opened up in the next fiscal year. But one of the issues for Buffalo Wild Wings comes in one of their most popular categories, which is beer. They make a lot of money off of beer, and in fact, beer makes up the highest percentage of all of their on-premise drinks consumed at 44% with spirits coming in at 31%, and wine coming in at just 21%. There are some issues here with their beer prices as well. They offer flexible beer pricing, which sounds like it might be a positive for a consumer, but oftentimes their wait staff, as well as the customer, doesn't know what a beer might cost based on the time of day or the day of week. They don't actually publish their beer prices on a menu outside of specials. And that's not wholly unique, but there are some issues when customers don't have that consistency and might be charged five to six dollars for a 16 ounce beer one day, where they were charged 350 for the same beer a few days ago. So there's some inconsistency there with the audience. The second issue is that during the last fiscal year, they got only 3% of their alcoholic drink sales from cider and cider is a consistently growing and in fact you could call it a booming alcoholic beverage category and you feel like they're going to have to amp up cider sales as a percentage of overall drink sales if they are to succeed in that category cider much like beer a high margin item however if they emphasize takeout as they say they want to do they're going to have a tough time expanding any alcoholic beverage sales because that's not included in their takeout platform. So a few issues to figure out for Buffalo Wild Wings. They are rolling out some new menu items, including a new line of burgers. This is important because they mentioned in their last quarterly release that they expect deflationary food costs, excluding traditional chicken wings, because chicken wings right now are in this space where The chicken wings are actually inflating in terms of price. And I quote, higher than forecasted due to high demand and supply disruption. That's from their last quarterly release. And this is backed up by a number of other restaurant outlets. And in fact, one independent restaurant owner recently told me he was paying as much as 50 to 60 cents. Per wing on the front end making them essentially a loss leader for customers and he's trying to make that up with beer sales and sales of sides on the back end so you'll see buffalo wild wings begin to emphasize non-wing items in the future because that's where they feel like their margins lie
1: i really felt like i was being negative earlier when i was talking about this earnings call Overall, they are seeing the competition and they are trying to adjust through different ideas and innovation. As you mentioned, they're going to be rolling out some new burgers in some markets and they're going to be creating a blazing rewards loyalty program and they have partnered with a third party delivery company that will be delivering out of 90 company owned locations. My only issue is that they may need to speed some of these initiatives up. This is one of the issues in this type of restaurant concept that will be affecting them in the longer term. They really are competing with the likes of Denny's, the likes of Red Robin, everybody, BJ's, Brewhouse. There's a lot of players in this space, and I tend to think there will be some winners and there will be some losers in the next three to four years. You're going to see some of the companies really take a lot of capital and put it towards programs such as delivery, and they are going to be the ones that are going to win out. They do have to create some new menu offerings as time goes on, but that's the same with any type of company in the restaurant segment. Overall, the revenues for the company did increase 8.5% to $494.2 million, and this was from $455.5 million. Net income increased as well. And this is really what analysts were looking for is some positivity in the numbers despite those same store sales misses. The stock was up over 7% after the earnings release. But if you look at the stock performance for the year, they are down significantly. The stock is now trading at around $143 a share. It was trading at this time last year at $184 a share. So there is still a lot of damp expectation with Buffalo Wild Wings and I am curious you know in the quarters to come this is really going to be an important point for Buffalo Wild Wings as it is with their competitors to really see if they're able to adjust to the consumer instead of just blaming these macroeconomic issues for these lowered same-store sales numbers.
0: Well, we reached that point in the Food Focus podcast where we each talk about a food item that we tried that's new to the marketplace of food, or at least new to us. I did get a chance to try Chipotle chorizo during the last week, and just very briefly I enjoyed it, although a touch greasy. But the food I want to talk about is actually called 100% Food. It is a meal plan, basically, that's sold by Space Nutrients Station, and essentially the idea is that if you drink three bottles of 100% food a day, or consume three three cups at least of 100% food per day, then it makes up your entirety of your 2,000-calorie diet. So I went with the low-carb version, and I got actually the non-bottled version. I got them in large foil sacks and mixed it with the requisite amount of water. It was chilled water. Mixed it around and tried it, and actually it was a very interesting texture. There were a lot of seeds. It was pretty chunky. But overall, the taste of it was pretty positive for something that's intended to basically replace typical food. I don't know that I could drink it or essentially eat it for three meals a day, but I do feel like it is a decent meal replacement plan if you want to, say, skip breakfast and go with the 100% food. It was easy enough to mix, and overall, I would rate it among the top of these type of meal replacement foods.
1: My food item of the week is really a snack. I tried an apple straw by sensible portions this is the same company that makes the veggie straws and i actually bought them at my local sam's club these are apple straws with cinnamon flavor in them i got them because sensible portions really pays attention to the ingredients that they put into their products they make a lot of snack items and typically when you think of snacks you think of items that are high in saturated fats potentially some trans fats, high in sugar, but they really, again, take pride in what they put in them. And they say they're non-GMO, they're certified kosher, they're vegan, and they have zero grams of trans fats and they don't have any artificial flavors or preservatives. So it really caught my eye because of that promotion that they do all over the labeling of this particular item. But as for a normal serving... It's about 18 straws, so not that much for someone like me who gets addicted to these foods, especially if they taste as good as this one does. For 18 straws, it has 130 calories, only 7 grams of fat, only 0.5 grams of saturated fat, and I did mention sugar earlier. This product only has 2 grams of sugar, so if you look at the ingredient label, you have multi-grain straws which are made from wheat flour and oat flour a little bit of sugar you see some apple puree salt and canola oil so not a lot of ingredients for these apple straws and a very reasonable price point too this is something that i'm going to get addicted to and probably eat the whole bag within a week or so but overall you're looking at a price point of $4.98 for a very large bag I looked on sensibleportions.com, and they have varying sizes for this particular item. They have a one-ounce bag, a five-ounce bag, and a six-ounce bag for the customers. And you can actually buy them online and find a store near you who may carry some.
0: Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Food Focus podcast. Make sure and check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe on any podcast listening service. Be sure and check out our Retail Focus podcast that drops on Wednesdays as well if you don't already subscribe to that. Have a great week and we'll see you next week on Wednesday with Retail Focus. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.